Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. And happy Teacher Appreciation Week. You know, before we get going today, I just want to give a shout out and a thank you to all of the teachers out there. As regular listeners to this podcast know, I work with so many teachers on a weekly basis, and I continue to be inspired by your insatiable desire to continually show up for your students in the best way possible, both in your professional competence, but also in the relationships you develop with your students. Now, I know it sometimes feels like a thankless job where you only seem to hear from families or the public when there's a perceived problem. And the relentless disdain some in the public have toward the profession is disheartening, no doubt. And I'm sure many of you, especially post-pandemic, were questioning whether or not this profession is still right for you. But let me just say that it is. That we need you. The public needs you. And most importantly, your students need you. They need you to continue to show up for them in all ways. They need you to be that adult who inspires them, believes in them, and will never give up on them. I wish there was more positive collective regard for the profession. I know it's frustrating at times. I do know we see it in pockets in society for sure. And we see it within certain political discourses or conversations or political parties or whatever. But it's not as ubiquitous as we would like. But nonetheless, I want to just start today by saying, we see you. We appreciate you. And please know that those who know, know what an incredible pillar of society you are. So again, I just wanted to begin today by saying, Thank you. Few upcoming events to remind you of both this spring and into the fall. The Assessment Center Institute, big conference we're having in Las Vegas, that'll be May 24th through 26th. Now, grading from the inside out, two-day training. Let's go into the fall. It's going to be in Jonesboro, Arkansas, September 25th and 26th. It'll be in Charleston, South Carolina, October 11th and 12th. And in St. Louis, Missouri, December 6th and 7th. Now, the St. Louis event will be facilitated by Natalie Vardabasso. Longtime listeners to the podcast are familiar with Natalie. She's been on several times. Uh, she's been an associate with our assessment center team for about a year now and is starting to deliver the grading from the inside out content on my behalf. And I have to say, does an excellent job. So uh, if you're in and around the St. Louis area or you just want to travel to St. Louis in December of this coming year, uh, check that out um, December 6th and 7th. Also going to have the standards-based learning in action uh, two-day workshop. That'll be in Seattle, Washington, October 16th and 17th. So I have links in the show notes for all of those events. And a reminder, of course, I've talked about this over the last two episodes. My new book, Redefining Student Accountability, is finally out. And I have to say, I'm really excited about this book. Uh, it's my first solo book since Grading from the Inside Out that I published in 2016. So uh, that was kind of fun as well. I love co-authoring, uh, but it was also a great to get back to solo authoring as well. All right. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is none other than Dylan William. Dylan is, of course, one of the global thought leaders when it comes to classroom assessment. So I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. This is going to be part one of a two-part interview. So Dylan will be back uh, with us in two weeks. And in Assessment Corner, I want to remind you of a very important mindset when it comes to grade determination now that we are approaching the end of the school year. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Part one of my conversation with Dylan William is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a quick reminder that no matter how hard you try, the exceptions actually prove the rule. They don't counter it. 
Now, I don't know if this is just me, but recently I've been just running into this time and time again, where people seem to go out of their way to point out exceptions, thinking they're countering the point that I'm making, when in fact they're just actually proving the point and making it even stronger. Here's one example. When talking about modern grading practices or standards-based grading or sound grading practices or whatever label you want to put on it, I often use the example of blockbuster video. I do this to illustrate the point that we're now in a place where something is obsolete in today's context. And this is really meant to illustrate the point that when talking about reforming our grading practices, it's not helpful to go back and tell people how wrong they've been. It's better to just focus on how we can be more right and more aligned going forward. Because Blockbuster was very right in 1997. Blockbuster was very right in 2006. Blockbuster was still right in 2011. Because Blockbuster Video is obsolete in today's context, it doesn't retroactively make Blockbuster Video obsolete back in the 1990s or the 2000s. It's only wrong in today's context. So during a recent workshop, I was making the point that Blockbuster Video is obsolete. And very quickly, a participant pointed out that there is in fact one remaining Blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. And that's true. Because Blockbuster Video closed all of its corporate-owned stores by early 2014, leaving the Bend location as one of 50 remaining franchise stores. By July of 2018, the store in Bend, Oregon became the last remaining Blockbuster in the United States, and by March of 2019, it was the last one in the world. March of 2019. That's really not that long ago. But here's my point. Given the enthusiasm with which she presented that fact and the look on her face, it was, it was a little bit smug, I have to say, it appeared to me as if she thought she was proving me wrong. But what she was actually doing was making my point stronger. This is what is meant by the exception proving the rule. Given how many blockbuster video stores there were at one point just a short time ago, the fact that there is only one remaining in the world proves that the model is obsolete. Pointing out the exception only strengthened my argument. It doesn't counter it. Let me give you another example. In a different workshop, we got on to talking about student behavior. And to make a long story short, we were talking about how we often fixate on the minority of students. You know, we were talking about student behavior within the context of a three-tiered continuum like MTSS. So I made the reference to the old adage that 10% of the students often take 90% of our energy and our attention, and that we often fixate on that which we deem to be negative, and we need to keep reminding ourselves that the vast majority of our students are fairly respectful and go about the business of their school day without incident. I think I said something to the effect like that. The vast majority of our students in our schools are respectful, they go about their business every day being respectful and responsible. And as if right on cue, a participant in the workshop raised her hand and was shaking her head and tried to counter my point by telling me that there was a student just last week who swore at a teacher, became somewhat unruly, and caused quite the ruckus in her school. According to her, the student was sent to the school's administration and nothing was done and the student was sent back to class. Now I found out after that that wasn't entirely what happened because, if you can believe this, the school administrator she was referring to was actually attending the same workshop and was at the same table as her. That was a little bit surprising because I couldn't believe, like retroactively, I thought to myself, I can't believe the teacher said all of that in front of the entire workshop. Look, that's a conversation for another day. So 
When she tried to counter my point by pointing out the student who had been unruly and disrespectful toward the teacher and nothing happened, I asked her, tell me how many kids in your school would you say are somewhat, say, regularly disagreeable or disrespectful or misbehaved, whatever you want to call it. She said she wasn't sure. I said, okay, let's ballpark it. Use a percentage. Ballpark it for me. What percentage of your students tend to be disagreeable, disrespectful, misbehaved? And she replied by saying, mm, between about 5 and 10%. 5 and 10%. You see what I mean? I made the point that the vast majority of kids in schools are fairly well-behaved and respectful. And she tried to counter my point by pointing out that about 90 to 95% of the kids were well-behaved and respectful because she said 5 to 10% were disagreeable or unruly or disrespectful or whatever language you want to use. Her reference to the exception made my point stronger. Like, I don't really know where this is coming from. I don't know if we're at a place where people just want to argue for the sake of arguing, but it is so counterproductive. And if I'm being totally honest, it's annoying AF. I always walk away from these exchanges wondering if the person thinks they got me. Like, do they think, like, did you, do you think you did something there? I guess my only advice today is if you're someone who is inclined to do that, then do us all a favor. Please stop doing that. Majority is not all. Most is not all. Majority means majority, and most means most. If I wanted to say all, I would have used the word all. So the next time you're in a conversation or a debate about a topic, just my two cents on this, please listen to the words people are using and take them in context. I promise you, you can't unhear this when you hear it. Once it's etched in your mind, you will never be able to not see it or hear it. Just like a while ago, you remember when I talked about how, you know, people publicly proclaiming how humble they are? There is not one ounce of humility in any public proclamation of being humble, whether it be on social media or in public. Like I can't unsee or unhear those public declarations of humility, honestly. And it'll be the same thing with this. Once you start seeing people trying to use the exception as gotchas, you're going to quickly realize that their exceptions are actually making your point stronger. Joining me this week for the interview is Dylan William. Dylan is Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at the UCL Institute of Education. He has taught in urban public schools, directed large-scale testing, uh, testing programs, served a number of different roles in university administration, including the Dean of a School of Education, and pursued a research program focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment to support learning. Uh, the influence that Dylan has had around the world is immeasurable, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation uh, this week and next, next week. Listeners, this will be a two-part interview uh, with Dylan. So Dylan, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Great to be here. Uh, great to see you. Uh, great to have you here. I've certainly been an admirer of your work for at least 20 years, and, and you've had a major influence on my thinking around assessment um, in all the schools I've worked in and the work that I do now. So I really uh, appreciate that from you and also just the influence you've had. And uh, really, like I said, looking forward to today's conversation. And I mentioned briefly uh, in the introduction that you have had various roles throughout your career. Uh, most people will be familiar with some of the work around the research around assessment, et cetera. But take us back to the early days before we dig into the 
substance of the conversation. Take us back to the early days of your career. Give us a brief rundown of the professional journey so far. Where did you start teaching? Where did your education career go? And how did you end up where you are today? Well, I never really planned to be a teacher. I left university after a degree in math and physics, and I had planned to join some friends of mine in London as a musician. I was going to try to make it as a as a rock musician. And the band I was playing with needed money to buy a public address system. So I decided I needed to get a job as a teacher. And so I started teaching. And after a year of playing semi-professionally and teaching, I realized I couldn't carry on doing both. And to my surprise, I realized I was enjoying the teaching more. So I, I gave up any thought of being a musician and instead focused on becoming a teacher. So I taught in two different schools in um, in London, inner London, uh, as we would call it. And then I, I had an argument with the principal of my second school um, who had said I'd be a strong candidate for a job, but decided not to shortlist me for it. And I was fortunate enough the next day to be offered a research fellowship uh, at Chelsea College, as it then was, later became part of King's College. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess this is my kind of stubborn streak. It was just too tempting just to say, <laughs> stuff the job and just take it. And everybody was stunned that I gave up this safe job as a math teacher for a one-year temporary research contract. Um, but I did that job for a while, and then I got a tenure track position. And, you know, basically, um, 12 years later, I was the dean of that, of that uh, school of education. So that, so that was my academic career, completely unplanned. Uh, my biggest break um, came in 1989 when we were bidding for the development of some work to develop tests for the national curriculum of England and Wales. Mm-hmm. And I had led on the, the math proposal because that was my specialist field at the time. But we also decided that if we wanted to, to be coherent, we'd actually have a coordinating team if we were successful in getting more than one contract. And in the end, we got contracts for the English, the math, the science, and the technology uh, tests. And so we set up this central coordinating team, and I was asked to lead it, even though I was something like, I don't know, mid-30s at the time. I suspect because I could speak Welsh. The the job was to actually coordinate the development of assessments in English and Welsh, because 25% of kids in Wales do all their secondary school lessons through the medium of Welsh. And so the government was very sensitive about this, and therefore they wanted somebody who could represent the consortium um, in both English and Welsh. And I think that's why I got the nod in the end. <laughs> you could never have planned. So I'd originally planning been planning to be a math researcher, a math education researcher. I was looking at children's logical thinking. I spent two years on this project of developing assessments. And then realized that it would be quicker for me to write up what I'd been doing on the national curriculum assessments for my PhD than to go back to the original thesis. So I actually completed the, um, the second PhD I started. And that's how I became a, a kind of assessment person. It was yeah. just the way that the work um, work panned out. And the other thing I think I realized was that you know your PhD is never going to be a particularly significant piece of work. As a friend of mine once said to me, it's not having it that matters, it's not having it that matters. So (laughs) nobody's going to read it apart from your examiners and maybe your parents. 
So yeah. just get it done and move on. So that's why. So through, those three letters at the end of your name, right? That uh, you're able to 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 have uh, the rock and roll lifestyle and uh, and teaching. Certainly, the late nights of the rock and roll lifestyle and the early mornings of a teaching career probably don't mix very well. So it is surprising, though, that you you chose teaching over. I mean, the world is thankful, and and <laughs> all of us who really dig into the world of assessment are thankful. But uh, who knows what the untapped potential could have been, right? We never know what could be Dylan William, the rock star that we could have been listening to as well. And of course, we all know you as Dylan William. This globally recognized expert and leader in assessment research and sound practices and all that. But I want to pick up on something you said, like you talked about how you started to develop the assessments. You were not always Dylan William, this globally recognized expert in the area of assessment. So I'm wondering, like, where did the interest in assessment come from? What kind of sparked your curiosity and how did this become your life's work? Well, it's curious because in the very first job that I had as a teacher, actually my second job, my first job as a teacher uh, was working in a private school um, because I just my my father had arranged for a, uh, an exchange with an academic in Connecticut, and so he and my two sisters, my two younger sisters, went to Connecticut, and basically I had to get out of the house. So I found this agency that employed teachers, and I actually worked in a private residential school for for a year, but then moved to London. And I never trained as a teacher. Uh, At the time, the shortage of math and science teachers was so acute that you basically needed some kind of qualification and the ability to fog a mirror. And that was basically it you were in. (laughs) And so I started work and I I just was so lucky to work in a school that was tough. And that was lucky because every teacher, the experienced ones and the less experienced ones all struggled. And so it was a much more supportive environment But the scheme that we used, it was called the Secondary Mathematics Individualized Learning Experiment. The idea was that students worked, people often say at their own pace, but that wasn't right. They worked at the pace that I set for them. So students would be given resources, typically a a work card of some kind. And I would expect students to do something like uh, 10 of these work cards every two weeks. And so I would dictate the pace, but the level of difficulty was adjusted to the students' strengths and weaknesses. And the remarkable thing about this scheme was that we didn't decide what to do next until we saw how the students did on the work we set them. If they breezed through it, then we probably set more challenging work. If they struggled, we probably either set more consolidation at that level or even went back a step or two to rebuild some missing foundations. So what was interesting was that even though I'd never thought of it that way until much later, formative assessment was at the heart of everything I knew about teaching. The whole idea that teaching becomes a contingent rather than a linear process. You find out what your students have learned as a result of the teaching they've received before you decide what they do next. And so that's the system I used for the entire time, basically, that I was a um, a secondary school teacher, just using this kind of adaptive, responsive approach to teaching. And then I joined a research project that was looking at something similar. And it was just... Basically, the whole looking back, my whole career has been predicated on this assumption that teaching has to be a responsive process. You don't know what you're going to do next until you find out what your students have learned, and you better find out what your students learned. It's as simple as that. It goes back to yeah. David Ajibel. The most important yeah. single influence on instruction is what the learner already knows. Ascertain this and teach accordingly. 
it's so interesting how that unfolded for you, that it was just kind of a natural part of the, the program that you're doing. And, yep. and you uncover this power of formative assessment and, and, and making instructional maneuvers based on what the students have learned, as opposed to it being a front end decision. It kind of happened organically, as, as it sounds, yep. uh, and, and the way that that sort of unfolds for learners and how you understand. It's something I talk about with people all the time, which is you have to assess every day. It doesn't have to be a formal assessment, but you need to know whether or not the students have learned what you taught them today and whether or not you need to do what you have planned for the next 15 minutes, 20 minutes tomorrow, or do you have to make an adjustment? And I think it's something that still to this day is things that people know, but it still gets lost sometimes in, in the force of instruction and um, and that power. So we're going to explore more of that in terms of strategy in part two, but I want to go back to... Before, before we go on to that, yeah. I, I oh, yeah, go ahead, Dylan. One, one point I think is useful. What you're just talking about there, that responsive teaching is just good instruction. Right. The important it, point it, is thinking about this as an assessment process draws attention to the quality of the evidence that you have. And I think that's why it, it, people just say it's good teaching, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. But uh, thinking about this as an assessment process, I think draws attention to the quality of the evidence that you have for the decisions. And we'll get into that in the second program. Yeah, for sure. That that that's that's a great point because yeah, and I think sometimes when people say, Oh, that's just good teaching, just it's a bit reductive and a and a little less intentional and less purposeful. I think there yeah. is intention that has to be there for sure. So I want to go back to nineteen ninety-eight, October of nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, it would be my contention that the article that you you wrote with Paul Black uh, inside the black box, uh, I I believe was disproportionately responsible for a lot of the shift and the renaissance with assessment practices that happened in the late '90s and the and the early 2000s. Um, there were of course others who were influential around the world, but I I don't know of another article that got more traction in the research that paralleled that professional article in Phi Delta Cap, and that was definitely a, a pivotal moment in the assessment landscape, if you will. But my question is this, um, at the time that you were going through the research and, and putting that article together for Phi Delta Cap, and did you and Paul Black know what you were onto? Did you anticipate the kind of reaction that you were going to get from that research? Or did it surprise you both as well, the, the kind of traction that the research and, and the article had gained sort of late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, we were surprised. I mean, I think there's, we, we weren't expecting that. The, the background is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Paul had been invited to, to update two reviews of research by Gary Natriello and Terry Crooks, published in 1987 and 1988, respectively, on the effects of classroom assessment processes on students. And we were commissioned by this group of um, policy um, people, the assessment reform group, to update that, what's happened in the last 10 years. Looking back, they were primarily interested in summative assessment that had a positive backwash. So Gary Natriello and Terry Crooks showed some of the negative impacts of assessment on classroom processes. And so these people, these policy people, were primarily interested in summative assessment that was actually positive in terms of its impacts on learning. Paul Black and I took it in a different way because we decided to look at it across the whole educational cycle. And so we changed the focus to formative assessment not just assessment for learning. I think it's important to distinguish between those two things. So we looked at the research, we found, the, the, we reviewed the evidence, we presented our report. It's a 70-page journal article. It's, somebody once described it as a both elbows on the table read. <laughs> so that was our task. We were commissioned to write this and we wrote it and we handed it over to these policy people and they were, they were happy with that. Special issue of a journal, lots of commentaries, 
Paul and I decided that's not enough. We've got to put this into the hands of policymakers and teachers. And interestingly, the people who commissioned the report said, well, okay, if you want to do that, fine, but that's on your own dime. So we actually just decided to write this as a way of bringing it to um, wider attention. And we were also smart enough to realize that we needed to engage uh, professionals in dissemination. So we worked with the external relations department of King's College London, where we were working at the time. And we planned a launch. We got kind of um, the, the great and the good to attend this launch at the Nuffield Foundation in February. And so in a way it wasn't an accident because we actually worked quite hard on briefing people. Um, we, I think we got a story about this review in every single national newspaper in England because of the work of our um, colleagues in the external relations department. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a fluke, but I think we were still surprised by the amount of traction it got first in England, and then with the publication of the parallel article in Kaplan um, in the United States. And I think uh, last time I checked, it was still the most downloaded article um, from Fidel to Kaplan. Yeah, not surprising at all. Why do you think that is? Like why, when you look back now and you think to yourself, like it surprised you that, that the article got so much traction, but what do you think was happening? Like why, why then, why now, why that article? Why, why did it gain so much traction in, in terms of the context of education? I don't know. I mean, you know, we, we can always tell stories about these kinds of things. And sure. I'm, I'm very aware of the research on the extent to which people confabulate. I'm very suspicious of people who are asked, what's the secret of your success? Because most people don't know. Right. Most people completely <laughs> underplay the role of luck in their own achievements. Yeah. So, you know, certainly I know as a university administrator, I've been lucky and unlucky in terms of the people around me. And I've been successful and unsuccessful, not because of my skills, or efforts, but because of um, the environment I was in. So I'm a bit skeptical of people who know these things. Yeah. But I think that it just was the right place at the right time. I think people yeah. were getting tired of all these state mandated assessments. Mm -hmm. And also, I, it wasn't quite an emperor's new clothes thing, but it was probably saying, you know, we're missing something here. We are, mm -hmm. we are uh, particularly in the American context, we are doing huge damage to learners by repeatedly grading them in a way that makes them think they can't get smarter. Yeah. And so I think that was also a, an important part of it. It was just a different perspective. And I think people haven't thought of assessment in that way. People have only ever thought of assessment as taking place at the end of instruction rather than being a way of improving it during the yeah, process right. of teaching. As a practitioner at the time, you know, I have I have a theory, but I can only speak to the extent to which my sphere of influence. Uh, and I think that part of it for me, when I look at the landscape in the 90s, the standards movement in the United States and the the onset of aggressive standardized testing protocols and the and the idea that we have to find a way to prepare kids to meet standards and and what is the best way to help them learn and and how do we prepare them to to be successful uh, to me the article and the and the research came out at the right time as as standards standardized testing was was coming up so assessment was back on the radar but you're right it was such a different way of looking at assessment through the lens of how do we gather evidence how do we provide feedback how do we close gaps how do we how do we approach it it was such such a new way for me anyway it was you know a new way of thinking about assessment. So that's my theory. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, also in your previous response, which was the diff 
difference, you know, maybe articulate the difference between formative assessment and assessment for learning. I know assessment for learning sort of coined by Rick Stiggins and popularized by Rick Stiggins uh, and the Assessment Training Institute, which I'm quite familiar with and have worked closely with. But you, you, draw, you drew a distinction between the two. So for listeners who may not be familiar with that distinction, how, how would you describe the distinction between the two? Well, first, um, the term assessment for learning goes back to um, 1973. Oh, okay. I um, did not know that. It's, and there's a book, an edited book in special ed called Assessment for Learning in the Handicapped, in the Mentally Handicapped. Hmm. And like most of this work, it started out in special ed. People often say to me, what are the implications does it have in special ed? Well, I say this is where it started. The first hmm. review, the first meta-analysis of the impact of formative evaluation processes on students was done by Lynn and Douglas Fuchs in special ed. Wow. So that's where it all started. Formative evaluation, formative assessment. People attribute formative assessment to Michael Scriven. They don't actually realize that in fact, in the seminal paper that he wrote in 63, finally published in 67, he distinguished between summative and formative. The -hmm. word he was drawing attention to was summative. He invented the term summative assessment. The term formative had been around for years. So we'd always had this term formative assessment. Uh, as I said, um, we had this term uh, assessment for learning. It was used, subject of a talk by Mary James at the 1992 American Educational Research Association conference. I think that was in New Orleans. Um, and I think Ruth Sutton wrote a book with that title. And I, th- I don't know whether Rick invented it independently or yeah. um, came across these ideas, but Rick adopted this term assessment for learning. The important thing about assessment for learning is it includes assessment for summative purposes that has a positive backwash into Mm -hmm. instruction. And if you look at Rick's work and his strategies, a lot of them are about assessment being motivating and being a, you know, getting students to understand what they need to be doing and all those kinds of things. And more recently, you know, we've seen that assessment can be motivating. If I tell my kids there's a test on Friday and they prepare for the test, even if I don't give the test, they will have learned more because they prepared for the test. That is assessment for learning. It's not formative assessment because the assessment didn't form the direction of instruction. If I, if I give the assessment, the test, but I don't grade it, students still get the benefit of what psychologists call retrieval practice. Mm-hmm. Retrieving things from memory makes those memories stronger. It is assessment for learning. The assessment improved the learning. It's not formative assessment. If students do get this test scored and they find out that answers they thought were correct were actually incorrect, you get the benefit of a third effect, which is the hypercorrection effect. Finding things that you were confident were correct or actually incorrect makes you remember the correct answer for longer. That is assessment for learning. It's not formative assessment because the assessment didn't form the direction of instruction. So for me, formative assessment is a small corner of assessment for learning, but it is the one where the research suggests it has the greatest impact and really it should be an important part of teachers' daily activities. So that's the distinction I draw. Formative assessment is a special kind of assessment for learning where the assessment forms the direction of future instruction. Future instruction, yeah, no, that's a- oh, that's a, a yeah, future instruction. No. Uh, but the point is, the other thing that is interesting is in Canada, you have um, Lorna Earle talking about assessment as learning. As learning, yeah. And I think that is, that's a kind of backfilling because originally in Australia and in Canada, many people defined assessment for learning that in a way that focused on the teacher's role. Mm-hmm. 
And therefore, they had to bring in the learners when they realized they needed to talk about the learner's role, hence assessment as learning. Now, I think that's conceptually muddied because assessment is just a procedure for drawing conclusions and learning is a change in long-term memory. Saying those two things are the same, I think, confuses more than it clarifies. But here's the important point. For Paul and myself, learners and their peers have always been a part of formative assessment. Because we found, when we worked with teachers, you couldn't change what teachers were doing in classrooms unless you also helped students understand the changes that were necessary in their roles. Mm -hmm. you know, so to begin with, we found students saying, I, don't have, I shouldn't do self-assessment. That's your job as a teacher. I do the work. I hand it in. You grade it. That's the division of labor. So as soon as we started working with teachers in classrooms, we discovered that you had to involve the students in these new roles. And so for us, students have always been a part of formative assessment because it doesn't yeah. work otherwise. Right. I, I think that's a, I for, certainly appreciate the history lesson there for sure. And there's things that, that I wasn't, and, and as someone who, who feels familiar with the evolution of assessment as you know, I certainly learned some things there. Uh, so I appreciate that. And, and I agree the, the students at the center of the experience, when I often talk with schools and districts, it's, it's about empowering students. You know, our expertise in assessment is really about, that's not the end game. The end game is developing our expertise so we can teach the students how to do this for themselves yeah. and recognize quality and criteria for sure. Now I'm going to ask you to generalize now a little bit, um, even though we know that teachers and schools are not a monolith, I do want to ask to generalize a little bit. And I'm going to ask this in two parts uh, and I'm going to start with maybe what's perceived as the negative side and then we'll kind of go to the positive side. But when you think about the evolution of formative assessment over the, or assessment for learning practices in schools over the past 25 years, what has you feeling somewhat disappointed about what teachers in schools, like what are they not, what are we still not doing enough of? And we'll flip this around and talk about the optimistic side, but let's, let's first talk about 25 years or so since 1998. And what has you feeling a little bit disappointed with where assessment hasn't gone over the last 25 years? That we've got stuck in this idea that formative assessments in the plural yeah, are just yeah. ways of checking up on student progress. And this is really important. You know, any well-run organization should be able to monitor its progress towards its goals. But it's not the only kind of formative assessment, and it's not even the most powerful. So I think the disappointing thing, due to the absolutely superb work of, of Rick DeFore, the whole idea of common formative assessments, you and I need to agree what our kids should be learning, and then we'll test them. And if they're not learning, and if your kids are doing better than mine, and we've agreed that this test captures what we think they should be learning, I've run out of excuses and I'm ready to learn from you. So the, the whole process of common formative assessments is really powerful. And so much so that when I first moved to the US in 2003, uh, I was kind of fighting a one person battle to say, well, formative assessment is more than just assessments every six to 10 weeks. What's been interesting is in the intervening 20 or so years, it's got so shifted so much so that now people will say, that those common formative assessments or interim assessments are not, are not formative at all. Hmm. And so there's a kind of boundary war going on, a turf war over who gets yeah. to define formative assessment. <laughs> and I think that's unhelpful. People don't change the way they use words. And therefore, I've tried to suggest that this is an inclusive um, a, a, approach in, in, yeah. in my work. Basically talk about long cycle, medium cycle, and short cycle formative assessment. So the DeFore approach is mostly around long cycle, Rick Stiggins' approach is mostly around medium cycle. Mm -hmm. The work that I've emphasized is the short cycle stuff. Right. So how often right. should you do formative assessment? Not so much every six to 10 weeks, 
more like every six to 10 minutes. Right. right. That's the important. I, I, I could not agree. You know, it's hard. Obvious. I could not agree more uh, in terms of, of your work. I mean, it, I think that that part got lost. And again, from a practitioner's lens, I look at the timing and the evolution of things. You know, late 90s, early 2000s, we have this renaissance with assessment, but we also had the tech boom. Yeah. And what happened was we got the electronic grade books, and then we got into this business of over quantifying learning constantly. And so on the one hand, we became very um, efficient in terms of technology and tracking, but we lost the art of assessment in some places. We lost that art of the day-to-day, the minute-by-minute, which I know you talk about all the time, this idea that every six to 10 minutes I should be gauging where my students are and making decisions instructionally about what's next or what do I intervene on? How do I advance? Can I accelerate? I, I think that we we lost some of that with this the, the, the slickness of, of the, the tracking tools that we used to have to do by hand and we used to have to keep track of that is now the efficiency. Do, do you see a parallel there in terms of that technological advance and, and the, I guess, the disruption of what could have been a flow toward that every six to 10 minute assessment? Absolutely. And I think yeah. that the real problem here is that, as Daisy Christodoulou has pointed out in her book, Teachers Versus Technology, mm-hmm. um, I think that's the title, um, We've always had the problem of people saying, here's a great piece of technology, figure out how you can use it in your, in your classroom, rather than, um, as Mary Kennedy talks about, let's start with the problems of practice. What problems do I have? What decisions do I need to take? And will the technology help me do this better? Right. So we have a big push in the US, and Canada, and Australia, for data-driven decision-making. And I'm saying that's the wrong way around because it, it prioritizes, it valorizes the data. I think we should switch that around towards being decision-driven data collection. Oh, I love that. Start with the decisions teachers need to make and then figure out what evidence will help them make those decisions in a smarter way. But what we saw in the early 2000s was vendors coming up with these very sophisticated ways of analyzing student achievement, uh, performance, not learning probably, because they never bothered to find out if students still remembered it two weeks later. So it was right. really on performance. And then giving teachers these four color printouts and expecting the teachers to make smart use of these things. Well, the problem was, it wasn't forming a decision, informing a decision the teachers needed to make. They had moved on. By the time the data arrived, they were on to the next chapter of the book. So right. the whole idea of you know pushing data at teachers was wrong-headed in my view. We should have started with asking teachers what would you like to know about your students and when would you like to know it? That's the starting yeah. point for me. I think that's a great place to start because I, I find the best data collection is the data collection that answers the question you're seeking and, yes. and trying to find the information that helps you uh, move in that direction. So, okay, let's let's flip it around now and talk about what has you feeling, you know, when it comes to assessment for learning, you look at the landscape and again, generalizing here where, where schools are, um, what has you feeling optimistic and energized about the work being done in schools around uh, assessment for learning, informative assessment, et cetera, and teacher decisions. What has you feeling energized and optimistic? Well, I think that I'm buoyed by Winston Churchill's probably apocryphal mark, success is going from failure to failure without lo- loss of enthusiasm. So <laughs> for me, I just keep on, you know, we're, we're getting somewhere. People are more open to these ideas. They're more interested. Um, and what's frustrating, but also empowering, is how obvious this is. You know, teachers around the world are still needing to make a decision about whether to reinforce or to move on. And they make that decision by making up a question they haven't planned in advance, making it up, asking the class. Six students raise their hands. 
The teacher picks on one of those students, and if that student supplies the correct answer, the teacher generally says, good, and moves on. Right. So around the world, we still have teachers making a decision about the learning needs of a diverse group of learners based on the responses of one or two confident volunteers. Mm-hmm. And once teachers embrace the kind of craziness of that, I cannot possibly be meeting the learning needs of all my students if I'm only hearing from the ones who already know the answer. Right. Now, to, to be clear, this is it is very difficult in the United States when districts have pacing guides or when there's an overfull curriculum or when there's state-mandated tests. The irony is this. We have shown with large-scale randomized controlled trials, randomization at the school level, 140 high schools, we've shown that when teachers use this process, their kids score better on standardized tests. But what's interesting is people don't believe that. People say, I'd love to teach in this way, but I have to raise my test scores. And we've shown that the best way to raise your test scores is to teach in this way. But somehow it seems to be countercultural. But I think I'm optimistic because that is beginning to change. People are beginning to see, I might not cover all the standards, but more of my students will remember more of it and they'll do better if I actually make my teaching responsive to their needs. So I think it's, it's, it's taking, a, taking a while and it's taking longer in the US, maybe probably a bit less time in Canada. It, it's, it is very, very much on the agenda in Australia now. So I think Australia is where my work seems to be best received. Mm. But I think everywhere I can see signs of people beginning to, yeah, I, that makes sense. Yeah, I need to include all my kids. And ultimately it becomes an issue of equity and inclusion. Right. You know, basically, if you're in my classroom, you are part of this learning group. Mm-hmm. I care about you. I need to hear from you about what's going on in your head so that I can deal with your challenges in learning. And so the whole idea of inclusion and equity, I think inevitably, produces a focus on the whole group rather than just the usual suspects. Right. Yeah. The, I hear that constantly. And it's such an ironic statement to say, you know, Tom, I'd love to do formative assessment, but I'm too busy teaching. Yes. And it's just, it just, you, you can't unhear that when somebody says that to you, because you're like, basically what you're saying is you, I, you you're, 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 you don't have time for the most effective instructional strategy and approach because you're too busy instructing is what you're really saying when you say that. And it's just an interesting uh, pushback. That, but you're right, they, the connection there. And it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is the plural of formative assessments and seeing formative assessments as a thing, yeah. you know, like like formative assessment being a summative that doesn't count as opposed to yes. it being much more than that, right? That's kind of the approach that we took because of the numbers, because of the spreadsheets, because of the grade books that people were tracking. And I think you can kind of, you know, draw a loose thread through all of those things as yeah. we move forward. Okay, one one more as we close out uh, part one of our our conversation today. We've got two more questions, but one more sort of focused on you, and then and the question I ask everybody. Uh, and this is a little more personal in a way. Um, I'm, I'm wondering about someone that consistently challenges you. Who in the field? And I don't mean challenge as in confrontation. What I mean is, is there somebody or a group of people or a couple of people out there? that has you constantly reflecting and recalibrating and kind of thinking about where, where you are with your professional career? Less so now that I've retired from university life. So okay. uh, Tony Benn, the British politician, famously left parliament to focus on politics. And I think about that because I actually left university life to focus on teaching and research. Right. So um, less so now, but I think a couple of people, um, 
Laurie Shepard at uh, University of Colorado, Boulder. Yeah. Um, she, I think, has a very clear perspective on sociocultural approaches to, to learning. And I think that challenges my thinking quite a lot because I see it's important. I just don't know how to research it. Um, I think Randy Bennett, my colleague, former colleague at Educational Testing Service, was very good at pushing back on some of the issues around uh, formative assessment. Is it, a, is it an artifact? Is it an instrument? Is it a process? And he, I think, helpfully argues that, that, that they are both. I think that's quite important. Um, then uh, my partner, Siobhan Leahy, um, she uh, is a former high school teacher and high school principal. And uh, she brings me down to earth very quickly when I talk about stuff <laughs> that gets too high for the clouds. And the question is, you know, what does that, what does that mean for the teacher on a Friday afternoon? So I think right. that grounds me quite a lot. Um, but th th there's, there's basically a lot of people now doing some very, very exciting work. And so uh, my own view, I think there are lots of people who tell teachers what to do. Mm -hmm. And those people are easy to challenge. I never tell teachers what to do. I just point out the research evidence and I say to people, this might help. And so in some senses, other people say, well, that doesn't help. And I say, fine, you know, research is complicated. The fact that something works in one context doesn't mean it'll work in another context. Mm -hmm. So it, in a way, you could say that the greatest criticism of my work is that it's unfalsifiable because I never tell teachers what to do. And they say it doesn't work. Well, no, I didn't tell you what to do. I, I said, will this work with your kids? You're the professional. You take that decision. Right. So I think that's the important point about my work is that it's... Um, suggesting tools that the research evidence suggests other people have found helpful, but you need to figure out a way of making it work in your own classroom. And that I think is um, the most important feature of my work. And I think makes it kind of difficult to criticize because I'm not making scientific claims, which I would right. do if I was an academic. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's that's a. I think that is the right approach. To, to, who am I to tell you that's the right approach? But my point being that I think sharing the ideas, sharing the the strategies, and and saying, look, as a professional, you have to because there's so much around assessment. I think I want to get into this in part two, but there's so much around assessment that is that becomes so reductive, especially on social media. Right. The definitiveness and the the absolutism that happens on social media about assessment. When you know, from my perspective, and I think you would agree, everything about assessment is so context dependent and nuanced, and we have to be very savvy about that. We're going to get into more of that in part two. And I just right. think sometimes there's a definitiveness and, a, and a, an over, over simplification of so much that happens uh, in schools. So last question as we finish out part one. Uh, and this is a question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. It doesn't have to be about assessment. It can be about anything. Uh, take it in any direction you want to. But the question is simply this. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? The number of kids... The number of students who leave our schools at the age of 15, 16, 17, 18, depending on the system, without the skills they need to participate effectively in society. Mm -hmm. In most Western countries, it's about 20%. You've got 20% of students leaving school after 15 years of education without the skills they need. And that, that's changed. I mean, I used to worry about, I used to run a class for gifted students. I used to worry about the gifted students. I now worry far more about the lower end of the achievement range. Um, I often say that our job as teachers is not to accept the bell curve. The bell curve of results is what you get if you treat different kids the same. Mm -hmm. If you treat all kids the same, 
you'll get the bell curve because students vary in their ability to make sense of instruction. Our job as teachers is to destroy the bell curve, to make our teaching responsive to our students. And if the students aren't getting it, we don't accept that as being how the world is. We say, we mustn't have this. We must actually give those students more support, more time to make sure that they leave our schools with the skills they need. But also, and this is something I've changed my mind on quite clearly in the last five years as well, there's now not enough time in school to teach our students all they need for the rest of their lives. It was a kind of tenable argument 40 years ago, but now most of what they need for the rest of their lives hasn't been discovered or invented yet. So I, I, I worry about our students leaving us with the skills they need to thrive in modern society. But I worry just as much about students who leave our schools with a passion for learning with which they arrived completely extinguished. We need our 18 year olds leaving our schools with the same passion for finding things out, for learning, for getting smarter that they had when they were five years old and they entered our educational system. And that's what worries me is we may be successful in terms of test scores by extinguishing the passion for learning that humans naturally have, which makes those people ill-suited for a constantly evolving uh, world that they'll enter. Yeah, yeah it's a, definitely something to be concerned about for sure. And it makes me think of something I've often thought about is that in the process of teaching someone how to read, if you simultaneously have them come to a place where they hate reading, have yeah. we really accomplished what yeah. we we're setting out to do? You can't, you know, because if you can't read or you don't read in, on one level, you are no better off. And certainly uh, that enthusiasm we want those kids to have at 18 years old. We know that there's a little bit of cynicism that comes with the teenage years, but still that internal enthusiasm that the kindergarten students have, we'd love to have that as well. And I think that's a lofty goal for sure. Uh, Dylan, thanks for joining me for part one. We'll be back next week for part two of our conversation where we're going to get into more strategies and talk specifics around classroom practice. Look forward to it. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to spend a few minutes on a year-end reminder when it comes to determining students' grades. I think as we approach the end of the school year, there's something important to keep in mind. Now, I know for some of you, this might feel a little early as your year end doesn't occur until the latter half of June, but other schools, especially many throughout the United States, often end just before the Memorial Day weekend in May, and that's only a few weeks away. Plus, we only have two episodes left until the summer episodes, which will, as many longtime listeners recall, uh, will take on a bit of a different format. Okay, so here's what I want you to remember. When it comes to determining final grades, think cumulative overall effect of instruction rather than what has the student accumulated. I know this can sound a little oversimplified, but a grade really should reflect what the student knows and can do, regardless of how low or slow they started. Now, we, of course, have a long history of grading systems where students accumulate points, and those points are used to calculate the student's grades. But as a reminder, and I've mentioned this a few times in previous episodes, that assessment is a process ultimately for drawing inferences. So after all of the evidence has been gathered, the question really becomes, using my professional judgment, what do I infer about the degree to which a student has met the standards of the class that they're enrolled in? I do recognize that some still struggle with the idea of using their professional judgment, but as I always say, professions require judgment. 
And if we as a professional are going to claim to be a profession, if we're going to claim that, we can't turn around and then hide behind a calculation to sort of distance ourselves from the grades that students earn. Calculations typically fail to account for the type of errors because a simple mistake and an egregious misunderstanding are often treated as the same, and they're not. That's why a student with a lower score on an assessment could actually know more, right? I use this example a lot. You could have a student who scores 15 out of 20 on an assessment, but they left five questions blank and had no idea how to answer those questions. You could also have a student earn 13 out of 20, but that student answered all 20 questions, but made seven very simple mistakes. You know, something like five times two became seven. They knew how to answer each question. They understood the procedures. They knew all of it, but they simply made those simple mistakes. So you could actually have a lower score, but actually have a deeper level of understanding. The cumulative effect asks the question, where is the student now, regardless of how low or slow they started? And again, I can recognize that this is maybe somewhat challenging for many as their grade books are percentage based. And, and then there's districts that have, you know, open grade books to parents and parents can log in and track their child's learning and parents and families become obsessed with the grade books and watch them like they're watching the stock market ticker, looking for any blip up or down. I get that. But even where that is the case, we can let parents and families know that the more recent evidence will be given more consideration when determining grades and that there can be, you know, a system of communication in place to help parents and families navigate the online gradebook. We have to start thinking a little more holistically. Again, if we understand that assessment is a process for gathering evidence that allows a teacher to make an inference about the degree to which a student has met the standards in the class, then thinking holistically will be a more reliable way of doing that and actually allow the more recent evidence to carry greater influence. So if at the end of the school year, if we just went through the exercise and asked this simple question, overall, what is the degree to which the student has met the standards or understands the standards of this class? If you believe the student overall has reached a level of excellence, then they've earned an A. If you believe they've reached a level of competence, then maybe it's a B. If it's somewhat mixed, then maybe it's a C. And if they've given you minimally acceptable levels of performance by and large, then maybe it's a D. And if it's insufficient evidence, it's an F. Now, I understand that many of you may not be able to actually do what I've just described, given your board's policies or school's expectations or anything like that, but I want you to try it. I would ask you to try this without looking at the current grades in the gradebook. I mean, obviously, I can't check that you're going to do that or anything like that, so we have to work off the honor system, right? <laughs> but here's what I'd like you to try. I want you to print blank copies of your class rosters. So if you're high school, print a blank copy of each class you teach. Elementary school, you could probably print one and use all the columns or something for the different subjects. Middle school, combination of each. Whatever, whatever works for you, right? So you have a list of your class roster. I want you to go down that roster one student at a time and just think to yourselves within five to ten seconds, what is the overall depth of understanding this student currently has in my class? To what degree have they met the standards? Again, if they've reached a level of excellence, just put an A. If they've reached a level of competence, B, mixed, it's a C. Minimally, it's a D. Insufficient evidence, it's an F. Again, try to do this within five to 10 seconds. Now, I know you're probably familiar with the grades that are already in the grade book that you've probably looked at, so I know you can't unsee that. But, you know, so this might not be a complete representation of what it could be, 
but I, but I want you to try it because my guess is that given the amount of interaction you've had with your students, the amount of, you know, evidence that you've consumed, my guess is that the, for the majority of students, if not all of your students, you'll be pretty spot on. I mean, it's only five choices, excellence, competence, mixed, minimally insufficient evidence. We have to keep reminding ourselves that evidence is evidence. And although we often determine our assessment purpose ahead of time by asserting, you know, the formative or the summative purpose, every assessment has the potential to be used formatively or summatively. And as well, it's important to also remember that summative doesn't always have to be a thing. It really can be a moment. It's a moment in time when a teacher examines the preponderance of evidence and makes a decision or determines the degree to which a student has met the learning goals. And when making that determination, we should, and often do, we think about the cumulative effect rather than what the student has accumulated over time. I know that's not what many of us are used to, and I wasn't for a very long stretch of my career. But it really does capture what it means for us to be professionals. We often hesitate to use our professional judgment for, I think, two main reasons. One, we're not sure if our colleagues would make similar decisions. That's why we have to talk about grade determination in our grade level teams or our department or at least with those who teach the same grade level subject. And the second reason we often hesitate to use professional judgment is we worry about defending our decisions with students and families if they happen to push back. Now, the latter point that I just mentioned, the calibration in point one, that can actually help with this point in the sense that decisions, professional decisions are easier to defend when the process is clear, transparent, and shared by all of our colleagues. We really do have to stop hiding behind a calculation and pretending we had nothing to do with it. You know, oh, that's just how the grade calculated. Because there's so much about how the grade book was set up and what was calculated that we have everything to do with. We set it up. It's the computer's just doing what you told it to do. I guess for me, I just, I really want us to recapture our professionalism. And there is no better way of exercising that than when we use our professional judgment and recapture our expertise and our experience. After all, you know, accurately reporting student achievement has to be our goal. And we will never get there when what a student used to not know continues to count against them in perpetuity. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events this spring and also into the fall. Next time, uh, we'll have part two of my conversation with Dylan Williams, so you won't want to miss that. And after that, we'll get into our summer episodes, which will be a little bit different in format and, and, and maybe a little bit different in topics. Um, I'll keep you posted on that. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.